0: As we open God's word together, I'd like to ask that you would bow your head with me as we ask God's help now as we look into his word. <clears throat> Lord, we want to echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119 this morning. We ask that you would teach us your decrees. We need you to be at work now if we are to benefit from the reading and the teaching of your word. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your God, if you do not give us sight, we lack the ability to fully comprehend what it is that you have revealed to us in your word. We ask that you would cause us to understand the way of your precepts, that you would give us understanding to learn your commandments, that you would give us discernment that we might understand your statutes. Lord, we are seeking your help this morning as we listen to your word. And we pray this in faith, confident, God, that you desire to teach us, to show yourself to us, and to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray all of this in his name. Amen. When we face hardships in life, whether it's physical suffering, whether it's relational turmoil, whatever it is, whenever we face suffering and difficulty, there's a question that inevitably arises in all of our hearts. And if it's never happened to you, then it probably will someday. And the question, this insidious question is this, Does God see? Does God realize what's happening to me? Does God hear? Does he hear my prayers? Does he hear my crying? Does he hear my anguish? And really the question beneath that question is this, does God care? Does he care that I'm experiencing what I'm going through? If the answer to those questions is no, if God does not see or if God does not hear, or even worse, if God does see and hear but he doesn't care, If that's the case, then the hopeless reality is that we are on our own. We are on our own in whatever it is that we are facing and dealing with. But if the answer is yes to those questions, if the answer is that God does see and that God does hear and that he is not some some impassioned, calloused observer, but he actually cares, if that is Case, then we can wait on him in faith. We can believe in his promises. We can persevere because we have found a true source of comfort and hope. The scriptures teach us this glorious truth that we are seen and heard by a compassionate and faithful God. That is true. And it's a truth that we all need. No matter what you're going through, God sees and God hears and He cares. He is not some callous observer, He is compassionate. He is merciful, he is gracious, and he is faithful. We see this truth revealed many places in Scripture, but this truth is especially poignant in Genesis chapter 16. I'd ask you to turn there this morning. Those of you who are visiting, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis for the last few months, and we are in chapter 16 this morning. Now, if you're familiar with Abram's story, whether you've been with us over the last few months or perhaps if you've read this story, heard this story before, You'll notice a pattern in the life of Abram and and his wife, Sarai. It's a pattern of both faith that's often followed by doubt, a pattern of radical obedience that's often followed up by moral compromise. We hear stories of courage, but we also see evidence of fear. We see Abram's success, and then we see his failure. He's a lot like us, isn't he? Faith can be a struggle. In chapter 16, We read a story that is really sad because in it we see a failure, failure of Abram, and we see the ensuing pain that this failure causes. But we're also shown a picture of God, a picture of God that we all need to see, a God who is compassionate and merciful and faithful. This this chapter is really broken into two sections. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and look at the first half of this story, first of all. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And we'll stop there. There's a principle here that we need to consider, even though our circumstances are likely different than Abram's. And the principle is this, that pain is often amplified by human faithlessness. It's amplified by faithlessness. See this in verses 1 through 6. The chosen family faces a difficult situation, but the way that they respond to it, it actually makes things worse, as we'll see. The the factor that contributes to the crisis we see in verse 1. Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And this is more than just a... a Random circumstance. If you remember, this whole story is wrapped around the promise. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God had called this man Abram and his family and promised them, Go to this land I will show you, I will bless you, I will make your name great, I will make of you a great nation. And, and as this promise unfolds, we see that there's two key elements. There's a promise here that's been cemented even in a covenant. God has guaranteed them these things, that they would inherit a land, and that Abram would have a son through whom he would have many offspring those two elements are important land and offspring but both aspects of that promise as we've been reading the story have been put in jeopardy as soon as they enter into the land we saw in chapter 12 they experience a famine and not only was the land barren but so too was Abram's wife Back in chapter 11, as we were introduced to Abram and his family, it says, now Sarai was barren and she had no child. We get to chapter 16. We see that that circumstance has not changed. Nothing's changed. She has still borne him no children. And Sarai feels the tension of this crisis. Being barren is a big deal here. And she's really struggling with it. And I, I think it's important we understand it's not that she desires children because she wants to fulfill her personal fantasy of Being a homemaker and having a happy family with a white picket fence and calling the children in for peanut butter and jelly sand, that's not what's on her mind. No, she isn't just jealous of her friends' social media baby pictures. That's not why she's so concerned about the lack of children. The lack of children for her meant shame. Children were an honor. Children were a blessing. They were a, a heritage from the Lord, as it says in Psalms. And in that culture, which was so based not around your accomplishments but around honor and shame. It was a big deal for her that she had no children. The lack of children meant no ongoing legacy for their family. And more than that, it not just was a matter of shame and honor, but there's some real fear here. Who would take care of them in their old age? Who would watch over and protect them and make sure that someone who was stronger didn't come in and plunder them and leave them in the cold as they grew older and weaker? Even more than that, the lack of children seemed to be a major roadblock in the fulfillment of God's promise. God had promised to give them offspring and make of them a great nation. What was going to come of that promise? Notice what she says. She says to Abram in verse 2 Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You have to wonder is there a note of bitterness here? Is she blaming God? She acknowledges that God is in control, which is true. It's true that God is the one who is responsible for her lack of children. But this reality is not bringing her any comfort, as the sovereign control of God ought to in our lives. Rather, she's about to take matters into her own hand, revealing that she does not trust this God who has prevented her from having children. This factor brings pressure into her life. There's a crisis. There's tension. There's fear. There's uncertainty. And this leads to their failure. We see this in verses 2 through 4. Here's her solution. In verse 2, she says, Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Moses has told us another detail in verse 1, if you back up there. Not only was Sarai barren, but she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. If you remember, there was a time when the land was experiencing famine and Abram, in a moment of doubt and fear, had fled to Egypt. And he had spread the word and, and asked Sarai to help spread the word that she was his sister, which was a half-truth, but a whole lie. Because he was intending to obscure the truth. He was afraid they would kill him because his wife was beautiful. And not to recap the whole story, but Pharaoh does take her, realizes that he shouldn't have. He gives, but he has given um, uh, Abram, all of, these, all of these riches, he's given him gold and silver, male and female servants, donkeys and camels. He's given him all these things as sort of a dowry, as a payment, because he's so pleased with this woman. And here we see that, well, some of those, those blessings, if you want to call them that, are now going to bring some complications. It's bringing complications, because these many gifts are about to become a factor now, because they have this Egyptian servant who is with them. And we see what Sarai does. She pressures her husband. She says, here's my idea. Here's what I think we need to do. And she gives him this suggestion. She offers her servant to be a surrogate mother to secure offspring. Now, this kind of seems shocking to us. I mean, in our day and age, it's hard to imagine, wives, isn't it hard to imagine suggesting something like that? But you have to understand that it was a common custom in that ancient society. It's well attested. You can even read the ancient code of Hammurabi if you know your history. And this was something that was a common practice in many of those different cultures in that day and age. A servant would be taken as a wife or a concubine for the purpose of giving birth to an heir. Because having an heir was the most important thing for the family. And the couple would then adopt that son as their own. To us, it seems unthinkable. unthinkable, But for them, it seemed perfectly logical. I mean, she's being very practical here. It was widely accepted. Why don't we do this, Abram? The Joneses are doing it, right? Everybody else would do this in this situation. Let's do this. You have to understand that for 10 years, they had waited. They've been in the land for 10 years, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled So so imagine this, they've kind of had this option sitting right there under their nose the whole time. Put it this way, imagine someone in our day and age who's dealing with an unwanted pregnancy and they live right next door to Planned Parenthood. You have to wonder, how many times had this plan perhaps crossed her mind? But now she could wait no longer. Maybe she even thought that this would help God out. Maybe God is wanting to give us offspring through my servant, Hagar. In any case, she pressures Abram to take this course of action and he is all too willing to do his part. We see in verse um, verse three, Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan and then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, his wife. And we see here Abram's cooperation with this plan. He went into Hagar and she conceived. it's really sad. In chapter 15, we saw last week that Abram listens to the voice of the Lord and he responds to the voice of the Lord. He submits himself to the will of the Lord that's been revealed through the word of the Lord. But in chapter 16, he listens not to the Lord, but to the voice of Sarai. And rather than acting in faith, he listens to her rational and logical plan, but it's a plan that is outside the will of God for him and his family. You know what? This isn't the first time in Genesis that a husband has followed his wife's advice, and it's led to disastrous results. Remember, it was Eve who gave the fruit to her husband, Adam, and he passively followed her lead. He took and he ate. That original sin was an abdication of leadership on Adam's part. It was a reversal of roles, and now we see the same sad pattern playing out again here in Genesis 16. And what became of it? Well, she did conceive She did conceive, but rather than making everything better, things actually get worse. In verse 2, Sarai was a woman in crisis. She says, God has prevented me from having children. But we see here that these actions actually create a new crisis, a different problem. We see in verse 4 that Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. They make this decision. They take this course of action, but there's some pretty serious fallout because of the course of action that they chose to take. You see, marriage was designed for one man and one woman. The math equation we're given in Genesis is one plus one equals one. The man and the wife come together, and they are one flesh. If you rewrite that math equation, it really doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's very apparent here, the wisdom of God's design, because as they take these steps, it causes problems. It wreaks havoc on the family. You add another person in, you get big problems. And these foolish choices they made are now coming back to bite them. Sarah had come up with this plan in trying to solve a problem. But like all of us have probably experienced, when we take matters into our own hands and try to solve them, more often than not, we make things worse. Sarah had sent this woman into the marriage chamber. And so now she has a rival in the home. Now we have drama. It's really a soap opera. There's some pretty intense jealousy and competition going on. Hagar had been promoted, no longer a servant. She is now a wife of the patriarch. Not only is she a wife, she's now carrying his child. And you can almost hear Hagar saying, look at me now. Look at me now. Because of her new status as wife and her honor as the fruitful one, she no longer sees Sarai as her master. She now looks upon her as her equal. More than that, she feels like she's better than Sarai. There's been a major power shift. Hagar feels like she's better. This causes strife between Sarai and Hagar. She looks on her with contempt. And Sarai has a problem with this. And because she has a problem with this, she turns around and then has a problem with Abram. We see strife between Sarai and Abram. Just as Adam and Eve shifted the blame for their sin, Here we see that Sarai actually throws all of this in Abram's face and plays the victim. Look at what she says. May the wrong done to me, verse 5, be on you. This is your fault, Abram. This is your fault. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt, and here she cries out for justice. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's basically drawing a line in the sand, Abram. Who's it going to be? The servant or me? I'm being mistreated. I'm the victim here. Even though she initiated this claim or this process, she claims that she's the one who's been wronged and she's playing the victim. Whose side are you on, Abram? May God judge between you and me. Sadly, Abram is not done being passive. We see how he responds in verse 6. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Just as he quickly agreed to her original plan, here he takes the tired and lame approach. If mama ain't happy, nobody happy. Do whatever you want. Yes, dear. Whatever you say, dear. Do whatever you want, dear. He affirms his commitment to Sarai. He says, I'm with you. I'm on your side. And he washes his hands of the whole situation. Do to her as you please. What this reveals is that Abram is really only concerned about himself, right? He's really not that concerned about his wife, Sarai, or his wife, Hagar. He's taking the path of least resistance. This is an abdication of his role as a husband. Not only does he fail to lead his wife, Sarai, but he fails to protect his wife, Hagar, the mother of his child. He's just as quick to throw her under the bus as he was to join her in bed. This results in harsh treatment. See this at the end of verse 6. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, and she fled from her. Now with Abram squarely on her side, Sarai feels the freedom to really take the gloves off. She takes the gloves off and seeks to reestablish her position as the top dog. We're not told what kind of abuse Hagar experienced at her hands, but we're told it was harsh. It was so harsh that Hagar flees. She runs away. We see in this whole ugly soap opera that Sarai is impatient She pressures her husband, that Abram is passive and complicit. He goes along with it. Hagar has been dragged into their mess, and now she's the scapegoat for all Sarai's frustrations. This is a sad and ugly chapter in the lives of Abram and Sarai, isn't it? It's evidence of unbelief. And human unfaithfulness, it amplifies pain. Now the pain that they had in in not having a child has been multiplied, and it's been pressed into the lives of others. Their pain hasn't been relieved. It's been made worse because their impatience and unbelief led them to compromise. But that's only the first half of the story. Although human unfaithfulness may amplify our pain, The encouraging truth is this, and we see this in the second half of the story, that comfort is provided because of divine faithfulness. Men are unfaithful, but God is faithful. Though our foolish actions and our sin amplifies pain, God is able to give comfort. We see this in verses 7 through 16. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her behold you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. At this point in the story, jumping back to verse 7, Hagar's in the wilderness. She has literally been used and abused, exploited and then discarded. She's the victim of injustice and cruelty at the hands of those who should have been a blessing to her. We can only imagine her pain and grief, but it's at this point that a new character steps onto the scene. God himself enters the picture. In verses 7 through 8, we see that she has an encounter with God. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, and he speaks to her. Who is the angel of the Lord? This is the first time that that this character, the angel of the Lord, has been mentioned in the book of Genesis. This is the messenger of Yahweh, the Lord. And that that word angel means messenger. That's what it means. The messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, rather, is the messenger of Yahweh. And in verse 10, this angel, he speaks not just for God, but he actually speaks as God. I don't know if you picked this up, but in verse 10, the angel of the Lord says to her, I will multiply your offspring. This is God himself come to speak to Hagar. The angel of the Lord is none other than the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. In all his glory, he comes to meet this woman in the desert. Now his appearance and his words here are important. First, notice that he seeks her. It says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. He found her. And this indicates, this, the Hebrew word for found here, not that he stumbles across her like, oh, surprise, look what I found. Rather, it indicates that he had been searching for her. I've been looking for you, Hagar. I've been seeking you. I've been pursuing you. Friends, this is grace, isn't it? The God of Abram has been seeking this Egyptian woman, seeking this woman who was a slave, this woman who had become an outcast. Sarai doesn't want her. Abram doesn't care, but God is searching for her. God is searching for her. Not only this, but notice how he addresses her. He addresses her by name, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? You know, it's interesting. If we go back to the first half of the chapter, at no point have Abram or Sarai ever uttered her name. She is only my servant, your servant. But to God, she is not property. She's a person. And his grace here is humanizing. He speaks to her and treats her with dignity and value. Hagar, he knows her name. She has a name, and he uses it. God values her not just for her reproductive services. He values her as a person. God treats her here with dignity. He is searching for her, and he values her. And as she has this encounter with God, notice the instruction from God in verse 9. Verse 9 He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now you might go, wait a second, wait a second. Return what to those people? Those people who have so cruelly treated her and discarded her? The household of Abram was not what you would call a safe place for Hagar. What about her harsh treatment? Well, there's more. Not only does God give her instruction, he gives her blessing and gives her encouragement. In verses 10 through 12, he tells her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Why did God tell her to return to Abram? It's because of blessing. This blessing that she experiences actually comes because of, get this, her proximity To Abram. Abram was God's chosen vessel, for better or for worse, with all his sins and struggles and with all his strengths. He was the one through whom God had determined to bring blessing to the whole world, to every family of the the earth, to all the nations. It was through Abram that she would be blessed. And so she was to return to him. Though imperfect, he was God's chosen conduit of blessing. Though Hagar's son, Ishmael, would not be the heir of promise, God was going to bless her. He was going to bless her as well because of Abram. This blessing included a multitude of offspring. It included a son, and a son who would be no man's slave. He would, be, he would not be one who was oppressed. He would be fiercely independent, a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, strength and independence and an identity. This was to be the destiny of her offspring. And she is to name her son Ishmael. And this name has a meaning. Ishmael means that God hears. Forever, the birth of her son would be a perpetual reminder to her that God has heard her cries. God has heard her suffering. The promise of a son and his greatness and his independence would be a comforting reassurance to her that God has heard you. You are not anonymous, Hagar. You have been heard. She's to experience here a sort of secondhand blessing. If you stand outside the workplace or a restaurant, you might get some secondhand smoke, as it were. Hagar here experiences a secondhand blessing because of her proximity to Abram. She is going to experience blessing. This is God's grace to her. And God is doing is to show his care and his comfort for her. She must return to the place of blessing in faith, trusting that God would provide for all her needs. And the name of her son would be a reminder to her that God hears. Though she was a slave and now an outcast, she was going to be the mother of a great nation because of all that God was going to do for her. This gives her great confidence in God. We see this in verses 13 through 16. She calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have heard him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar has encountered God in the wilderness. She has heard his divine promise of blessing, and here now she worships. She says, with awe and with gratitude, you are a God of seeing. You are the God who looks after me. She finds comfort here. When it says, you are a God of seeing, seeing here implies more than simply observing passively no it says that God has seen and God has done something about it he has acted on her behalf he is her provider and her protector and her benefactor Abram was of no help to her Sarai was her oppressor but God sees God sees and not only has God seen her but she recognized the fact that she has seen God I have seen the one who sees me God has manifested his very presence before her eyes. And the well there is named after this reality. The well of the living one who sees me. That's what Be'er Lahai Roy means. The living one who sees me. My God is alive and my God sees. And the naming of her son would be a reminder to her that God hears. The naming of the well, a reminder that God sees. God sees her and God hears her. Neither truths are to be forgotten. So God sends Hagar back to Abram, but he sends her back with hope and he sends her back with a message. She would relay her experience to Abram and he would name their son Ishmael, the God who hears. And this would have been a rebuke to him, a reminder to him that, listen, Abram, listen, Sarai. Remember back when you screwed everything up by taking Hagar as a wife? This is what you should have known. This is what you should have trusted in, that God sees and God hears. At the end of this story, Sarai is still barren. That tension is unsolved. But the word of God has revealed a lesson, a lesson that not only Hagar needed, but a lesson that Abram and Sarai needed as well, that God hears and God sees. And this was the truth that could strengthen their weak faith to help them as they waited in faith on God to fulfill his promise. The central truth that this story reveals is this. We are seen and heard by the compassionate and faithful God. If Abram and Sarah would have trusted in that, their pain never would have been amplified. It never would have caused all this damage. This is the lesson that they needed to hear. But this lesson is also crucial for Hagar. Though she was an Egyptian, though she was a slave, though she was treated harshly as an outcast, God is faithful, God sees and God hears and he is compassionate towards her. You see, the problem in this story is small faith. That's the problem. So what is the solution? The solution that God gives for their problem is to show them something about himself, isn't it? God is revealing himself to these people. It's a revelation of who God is and and it's experience that demonstrates to them what he is like. How do we today grow when our faith is weak? when we are tempted to compromise, when we feel pressure and we face crisis and we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, when we feel neglected and abused and discarded and anonymous, when we feel like the outcasts, what is it that we need to comfort us and strengthen our faith? We need to see God. We need to know him. We need to remember that he hears us and he sees us. He knows everything that you're facing and going through, and he cares. He is compassionate, and he is faithful. How do we strengthen and enlarge our faith? By seeking an expanded and deeper understanding of the object of our faith, God himself. In the fullness of his glory, in the perfection of all of his attributes, this is what you and I today need to see with eyes of faith. This will strengthen us. This will comfort us. This will enable us to persevere and to wait and to trust. This will give us comfort when we go through difficulty. You see, seeing God more clearly is what brings our faith to life. So if you're afraid this morning, or if you're impatient this morning, if you're unsure of the future and tempted to compromise, what you need this morning is to see God and encounter him and experience him. And that happens, friends, when we open up the word that is living and active. And we see in the word the person of God revealed to us. That changes us. Paul writes to the Corinthians that as we gaze upon Christ, as we behold his glory, that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. This is what we need to see as our vision of God is expanded, as we understand better the object of our faith, that will strengthen and deepen our faith itself. But there's a few practical lessons I want to pull out this morning as well, a few warnings that we need to learn from as we read from this story. The first is a warning against compromise. It's very easy there, easy to see. Fear and impatience can both lead to compromise, and we must guard against this. We, see, we saw back in chapter 12 that Abram's fear of the famine in the land of Canaan led him to Egypt. We see that Sarai's impatience led her to resort to this plan with Hagar. Fear and impatience both that cause us to make bad decisions. And this is a warning here for us against compromise. We may think that our compromise will make things better, but it will not. It will not. And it is wisdom for us to learn from this and not to repeat their foolishness. You see, compromising your integrity because of financial pressure, it's not worth it. It's not going to make things better. Compromising your moral purity because of a desire for love, a desire for affection, a desire for affirmation or or a longing for pleasure and joy, it's not worth it. Even if we look at things from a a, a church standpoint, compromising our methods in ministry in order to get quote-unquote results, It's not worth it. We must resist the temptation to compromise because it always makes things worse. It always makes things worse. But secondly, there's a warning here against idolatry and you might not not have noticed this one as clearly. We have to define idolatry. What is idolatry? It's loving. Idolatry is loving or wanting or needing or fearing anything above God himself. And idolatry is spiritually deadly. And get this, it always brings pain. Your gods don't love you and they can't meet your needs. So don't worship them. Don't worship them. We can see the idolatry played out in the life of Abram and Sarai. It was the idolatry of offspring. She wanted and needed children more than she wanted and needed God. We see this with Abram and Sarai that, that idolatry distorts the purpose of their marriage and it brings pain. Rather than see their one-flesh companionship or their one-flesh marriage as existing for the purpose of companionship and glorifying God, Sarai had a utilitarian view of marriage, didn't she? She saw marriage with Abram or marriage between Abram as, and, and Hagar as existing solely for the purpose of getting offspring. She made that the ultimate thing. She made that the ultimate thing. And when the thing wanted became the goal, when offspring became the goal, then the marriage became simply a delivery vehicle to give her what she wanted. If I can speak to husbands and wives just for a moment here, when you view your spouse as simply a delivery vehicle to give you the thing you want, whether it's children, whether it's respect, whether it's affirmation, whether it's intimacy, whether it's help to get your life together, whether it's financial stability, no matter what it is, when you view your spouse as simply a delivery vehicle to give you the thing that you really want, you have dehumanized your spouse and you've entered into idolatry. This is not love and this is not the purpose of marriage. And we can apply this to any relationship. We have to ask ourselves, do we look to our spouses or our friends or our parents or whoever it may be, other people in the church? Do we look to others simply as a means to an end, to give us the lifestyle or the fun or the stability or the comfort? That that's the thing we really want. When we do this, we dehumanize and dishonor others, and we're misusing the relationships that God has given us. Hagar experienced the pain that came from Sarai's marital idolatry because offspring became the ultimate thing. Wives, when you seek to pressure and control your husbands, that's not just being a bad wife. That's actually idolatry. It's idolatry because you want something. You're wanting some outcome more than you're wanting to please God. And so you're usurping the role that God has designed for the husband to fulfill, that of being the leader, when you usurp that role, you're wanting and needing something more than you're wanting and needing God. And it will bring damage to your marriage relationship. It will. Husbands, when you are passive, when you take the path of least resistance, you are abdicating your God-given role of humble and sacrificial leadership because you're, some, you're loving something You're loving something, whether it's your comfort, whether it's peace in the household, whether it's your wife's approval. You're loving something above God's will for you. And this is idolatry. It's not loving your wife. It's not loving God. It's loving yourself. And it will bring pain to your relationship. The good news this morning is that God loves and forgives idolaters, though, isn't it? All of us can look to this story and, and see ways in which we have been quick to jump to plan B and not trust God. Ways in which our idolatries have damaged relationships and caused pain in the lives of, of in our own lives and in the lives of others. But the good news here is that God loves and forgives idolaters. Abram and Sarai failed God. But the lesson of the second half of his chapter, get this, is that God did not fail them. You may have failed God. You may have failed your spouse, you may have failed your children. You may have failed your friends, but God will never fail us. He's not only gracious to Hagar here, he's also gracious to Abram and Sarai. Abram and Sarai heard the story from Hagar because Abram names his son Ishmael. And that was a reminder to him that God hears. And it would have been both a rebuke and a sign of grace that God did not reject Abram for his failure. God sees and hears Abram as well. Sinner, I want to give you the good news this morning that God will hear you. He will hear you if you'll come to the cross and repent of your sin, whether you are a lost sinner this morning or whether you are a fallen saint. Perhaps God is seeking you today the way he sought Hagar in the wilderness. Will you hear his voice? He's asking, where have you come from and where are you going? I want you to trust me. I want you to hold on to my promise. I want you to experience my grace. I want you to know that I am faithful and I care for you. Friends, God's faithfulness and his love and his seeking of us has been demonstrated most powerfully on the cross itself. Jesus left the throne of heaven to come here, become one of us, live a righteous life that we could not live, and die a death in our place that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, to prove the faithfulness of God. He promised to bring blessing to all the families of the earth through Abram and his descendants, and he's done so. He's done it through Jesus Christ. We experience, Galatians says, the promised blessing through faith. Through faith in Christ, we experience God's blessing. If you are far from him today, whether you are suffering or whether you are struggling in sin, come to Jesus and know that he is faithful. He can forgive, he can heal. He can love you and care for you. And that leads us finally to, in closing, a word of comfort to the abused. Some of you have experienced horrible things at the hands of others. Parents, perhaps former spouses, perhaps current spouses, perhaps children, perhaps a workplace environment. We've all gone through different things, but the encouraging word to us this morning is that God hears you, and he sees you, and he knows, and he is compassionate, and his grace is humanizing. It is. He values you as a person who's made in his image, you are seen and known and valued by God and we must hold to this as our comfort. I don't know if things really got better between Hagar and Sarai. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe it didn't. But it was better for her because now she knew who God was and that was enough for her. Friends, you may never experience full restoration. It may never be made right in this life. But it is enough for us to know that God sees and God hears. And it is enough for us to know that one day, One day, God will bring justice to bear. He will make all things right. One day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and make all things new. And that needs to be enough for us, even if nothing ever changes here in this life. But that's a word of comfort for us. You are not alone in your suffering. You are not forgotten. You are not anonymous. Remember who God is. Remember who God is. We are seen and heard by the compassionate and faithful God. My prayer for you and for me, for all of us as a church this morning, is that this truth would comfort and strengthen us. Because we have a lot of walking by faith to do, don't we? If Jesus tarries, and if we don't die tomorrow, many of us have years ahead of us that will be filled with trials, filled with tests, filled with difficulty. But if we know who God is, this will strengthen our faith as we seek to walk by faith as followers of Jesus. Lord in heaven, we thank you this morning that you are a God who hears and you are a God who sees. You are not callous. You are not cold. You are a compassionate and merciful God who has graciously provided all things that we need. You have given us not just money or food or health. You have given us yourself. You've sent your only son to be our savior. We could ask you for nothing greater, for there's nothing greater that you could have given. I pray, God, that you would comfort wounded hearts this morning. And I ask, God, that you would strengthen our weak faiths. That you would convict us of our idolatry. Lord, give us eyes to see the sin in our own lives, the, the things that we love more than you. I pray that we would repent of that and lay it aside, that you would be our greatest desire, that we would fear you above all else, love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, trust you, more than we trust our own human inventions. Lord, purify us today, encourage us, and use us, Lord, to be ambassadors who carry this good news to a world that is hurting. There are many out there who need to see God and know who he is. The world can only say, me too. But we can come along and say, but God, God has done something. I pray, God, that you would use us to show the world exactly who you are, so that your purposes might continue, so that your name might be glorified, so that your gospel may go forth, all for the sake of Jesus' name, amen.